Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the second of our two episodes featuring artists from Made in LA 2023, Acts of Living, the sixth iteration of the Hammer Museum Biennial. My guests are Erica Mahinai and Teresa Baker. Mahinai is a painter and sculptor whose work references and updates modernism in address of the human body. She's had solo exhibitions at galleries in New York, Los Angeles, and Rome. She's represented in Made in LA by both paintings and sculptures. I'll introduce Teresa Baker when we get to the second segment later in the show. Made in LA is on view through December 31st. It was curated by Diana Nawi and Pablo Jose Ramirez with Ashton Cooper. Erica Mahinai, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Rembrandt to Van Gogh, Masterpieces from the Armand Hammer Collection. Experience masterworks from the renowned Hammer Museum collection spanning the Renaissance to post-Impressionism. Highlights of the exhibition include paintings from the 16th and 17th century by Titian and Rembrandt. The Armand Hammer collection also includes three works by Vincent van Gogh. This exhibition offers a special opportunity to see these great works of art shown together outside Los Angeles for the very first time in this century. On view through January 21st. Learn more at mfah.org slash Rembrandt van Gogh. Artist, author, activist, educator. Witness the groundbreaking practice of Faith Ringgold in Faith Ringgold American People, opening at the Museum of Contemporary Chicago, November 18th. This comprehensive retrospective features over five decades of the artist's works, which detail the complexity of life in the United States and radical social change from the civil rights movement to today. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Erica Mahinai, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. Your paintings are big and historically rich, and those are things that I love and that we will come to. But I wanted to begin by talking a little bit about how you have made paintings and how you have come to physically make forthcoming the picture at the hammer. So let's let's go back a couple years to start with a picture called Sunseeker from 2021, which you made out of pigment, dyed silk, and acrylic, and which includes literally a parachute on the surface of the object and, and then that extends outward from the rectangle into the gallery space. So how did you physically construct Sunseeker? Or to put it another way, how did you not use brushes? <laughs> well, I mean, for the last decade, I've been, my paintings have primarily been sewn silk. And when I received this parachute from a friend, it made sense. The material made sense. It was pretty is in pretty rough shape. There are a lot of rips and tears. It's a vintage, I believe, World War II parachute. And so a lot of it was just disintegrating or missing. 
So with that piece, I, I did a lot of patching, you know, there's a pretty geometrical pattern to how a parachute is constructed. So I mimicked that construction because it was in such poor condition. A lot of the parachute cords had already come out of their, I guess their seams. And that was something that I wanted to I wanted to play with a little bit. So I extracted all of them from their seams. And that's that's what creates the kind of physical protrusion into space and onto the floor. But Working with the silk over the last decade or so, there's been a manipulation of transparency that I've been that I've been exploring through initially just through different acrylic mediums. Like I would use certain ones to make the silk more transparent or more opaque, and I would patch them together. But for Sunseeker, I had gone through this process of starting to use raw pigment and either throwing or smearing or uh, using my hands to kind of dust the pigment onto the surface and over these seams and across the surface in this kind of forensic way that like it picked up the wrinkles the puckers that kind of thing in a in a really visceral way for me and and the Um, material would accept that pigment and 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 hold it or bind it because actually it it stays pretty loose until I spray it with like a, what is it called? It's like an acrylic spray that helps. Like a fixative or something. Yeah, fixative. But you know, I also was, this is a little disjointed, but I also was dyeing the silk. And I had gone through this like other phase of making where I was folding and ironing and airbrushing. And then I was also experimenting with like pouring dye and using resist with my hands to kind of create this this like absence of color and and then like these positive pores. So Sunseeker, there is some of that, and I I believe I'm going back in years. What was that? 2021, I think I made that piece. So the actual parachute was a cream color, and I used resist with my hands, and then I. I believe I poured like these blues and kind of watery colors over the surface, steamed out that resist, left the marks of my hands, and then and then I responded to those marks with I think a, a yellow pigment, mostly yellow and maybe some whites and blues. How does that compare to how you got paint onto forthcoming? You know, the process is fairly similar. I guess I can talk about how I returned to oil painting. It, it's never been my kind of primary medium, but I've always done these like very small kind of still life studies using a very traditional approach to to oil painting where you create an underpainting out of burnt sienna or burnt umber, and then you layer titanium white over to create this optical color mixing effect that makes these really subtle blues and pinks and establishes light or dark or helps create the nuances of skin tone. It's like traditionally what that technique is used for. And because I had been working with these raw pigments, I was becoming more, I guess, attuned to color, more obsessed with color than I had been in, I guess, previous series of works. And 
I don't know. I just, I, I found a really natural translation of the material back into oil paint by using this technique that I had kind of kept going in the background, but then using my, the gestures that I had developed in the silk paintings. And by, also by gestures, do you mean using your hands and throwing? Using my hands, throwing, smearing, on that scale, I'm getting up on a scaffolding. And so like I'm climbing down, climbing up a ladder, you know, it's a, or, I mean, with the one at the hammer, I started that one horizontal. So the underpainting was all done with me kind of floating on the ladder that became a bridge over the painting. And I, it was on dollies. So I'd like push myself with my hands. So there was a lot of actual pressure being applied to the surface of the painting. Yeah, so I'm I'm translating that gesture, but I'm also translating some of my love for transparency that I was using in the silk paintings where I was controlling the opacity with different mediums or I was choosing silks that were thicker or thinner and combining them in these different ways where I could create a open window. With the oil painting, I mean oil painting isn't just I mean I think utilized for its transparency as a pigment you can really control and use like glazing techniques or you can make it very opaque and thick so that's why i choose that over say acrylic which for me has been such an opaque medium some people can manipulate it but for me oil painting is so much cleaner of a material for just like crisper colors easier for me to manipulate the transparency. So in, in forthcoming and in the paintings in a show you have up now, as we're taping this in Rome, a gallery called T293, is that all hands and handsiness or are we- For the most part, yeah. So that's what I thought. So then <laughs> inevitably my next question and the most predictable question ever asked is, why not brushes? Well, I mean, not to complicate things, but I do use brushes to some, you know, for some little details, but there's something about the directness of my hands. And when I started with the pigment, it really was this like, you know, touching of the surface and, and just reducing the space in between my sensorial experience without a tool in the way there, it is an intimate kind of experience. It's more physical. It shows the limits of my body. It shows scale. So, you know, they're for the most part forthcoming. It seems like a it's a abstract painting, but because my hand can be the gestures in my hand can be found, it sets the scale for the painting. The body sets the scale. Whereas with a brush, you can go very, very fine or you can go really wide. You can use a broom. So there's a different scale shift when fingertips when your fingertips are present. That sense of touch is it's it's more direct. I hesitate to say this because it will almost certainly come out the wrong way. But there's so much finger paint feel in the work. There's so much the action of tactility within the work. And I think that's probably true on both and all surfaces, whether you know, whether we're talking about linen or, or, or silk or what have you. One other thing about forthcoming before I kind of broaden out a bit. One of the most dramatic parts of the paint, actually, there's like a lot of drama in the painting. The foregrounded kind of yellows play off against the distant greens in a very Vuillard, Bernard garden kind of way. 
creates this real vibration, sense of movement. And then in kind of the upper right-hand part of the corner, there is a purple pore. And it's, you know, dripping and cascading down the surface of the canvas. And it's kind of like unlike anything I've seen in your other work. So why did you build a pore? These paintings, I mean, they they started as a really impulsive. They ha- I didn't have a place for them at first. I didn't know. I didn't. I wasn't making them for Made in LA at first. I wasn't making them from Rome at first. There was they weren't going anywhere, and it was maybe the f- first time in a while that I didn't have a destination for the work. So there's a different kind of freedom that you feel when when you feel like maybe you could put it away and no one will see it. So these paintings because they start with this underpainting technique, everything is a response from the initial kind of marks I make. I'll put like a a very flat kind of smooth layer of the burnt sienna or burnt umber and I'll wipe it away. And so there's that like push pull of adding and subtracting paint. And then everything is a response from there. And the paintings, like I didn't know where they would go. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was simply responding through color, through mark, through composition. And each of them, would I would hit this point where they became like ugly to me or difficult. And I would have to do something dramatic to get, to get out of that stuckness. It just had to, I did free myself of being stuck in whatever thing I had just created. And that purple pour was that move for this painting. So each of the paintings has a move like that, that just, I had to get onto the next piece of the journey. And so you make a dramatic mark that you're probably going to hate and then, and then respond from there. <laughs> Inevitably, I wanted to talk about your color, which for me feels like a palette torn from late 19th century and early 20th century French modernism. Sunseeker has lots of Monet and especially Van, Van Gogh in it. I already mentioned that forthcoming at the hammer has those yellows and purples and layers and movement that recall the knobbies, probably especially Vuillard. Paintings in the show in Rome have a lot of these colors that I would argue are of similar derivation. Do you think about rooting your palette in an art historical time or place? You know, when I first started using the pigment and I was kind of touching it on in almost a pointillist type of way. I thought about impressionism and pointillism a lot. And these pigments are also, they're the raw pigments. They're, they're the ones that everyone's been using forever, right? So it's kind of hard not to, um, to have those references when you're using this pigment that has just been utilized by all painters. And then when I started thinking about impressionism, pointillism, you know, these bouquets started coming out in the work for me, or there was something landscape or figurative about them, even though the technique I was using was, you know, creating unintentional relationships in color and immediately responsive and not thinking about the whole. I can't say that I'm using those references to say something in the work necessarily, but I know they're there and I 
appreciate them. A little bit in the, in the painting at the Hammer forthcoming and a lot at the paintings that you're showing now in Rome, there is this tremendous sense of, of movement. In paintings such as Rumoring from 2023 or Might from 2022, there's, there's almost these kinds of arrested swirls and the paintings seem to be migrating across themselves in a way. Is that something you're trying to get into the work or is it a byproduct of of the handsy way we've talked about you're making them? Where do you where do you think that comes from and, and do you want it? It's a I think it's a byproduct and it would be really difficult, I think, with my technique to maybe my technique and my sensibility to to not have it be there. You know, my mom is a psychiatric nurse practitioner and she also incorporates somatic dance into a lot of her treatment or working with patients. She she thinks about the these somatic therapies. And a lot of her thinking, I think, has influenced the work. So I think there is like a dance that happens with the work. And I often listen to music and I listen to the same music over and over and over. And I think it gets filtered in to these gestures. Almost sounds like you should be in a painting film. <laughs> like, 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 a, you know, there are those famous, I mean, obviously the hands nameth photographs of Pollock working, but there are also those famous, aren't, aren't there pictures, you know, of, 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 of mid 20th century painters, photographs and video of them working. They're not quite balletic. But the physicality, which I think is why I'm thinking of this, that you've been describing is is, is present there. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm not I'm not necessarily emoting while I'm making the work. They aren't like expressions of a specific emotion, but they do contain a, a large amount of joy, I think, you know, but then also the full arc of those emotions as well, like the frustration that I talked about earlier, the stuckness and then moving past that. I think it's, you know, it parallels our experience in life. And, you know, I learn, I learn from, from the process and then I put it back in. Another one of the connections to French modernism I see across your years of exhibiting is that you have quite often, in fact, almost always until quite recently exhibited sculpture with painting. Unlike say Matisse, who would often make sculptures that were three-dimensional realizations of, or engagements with, what he was painting at that exact time, like, you know, that exact month, your paintings and sculptures are not so immediately referential to each other. Why has showing painting and sculpture been important to you? I, I've always made really physical paintings. In undergrad, I used to make these paintings that spilled off the surface in a really Rauschenberg sculptural way. And then through grad school, I I focused on separating the two so that I could clarify what why I had this impulse to create something so physical and and insist on a painting background, a painting history, a painting language. And so in grad school, I really focused on separating the thing in physical space from the painting. And I learned that when I did that, the paintings themselves open up in a much more physical way and become almost more sculptural than they had before because I was able to work with the the nuances of layering up and transparency and 
creating this tension between a pictorial space and a physical interaction. And then I learned that the sculptures, when I take them off the wall, even though I'm still really approaching them as surface, they don't take on concerns of gravity and architecture and like a more of a sculpture concerns around space and and those things they they really are very surface and when i separate them from the wall i get to use these materials i get to pull in all these materials that have their own references and i i end up being able to kind of approach them from a narrative place where as with the paintings, it's it's kind of the strange thing where I don't think of the paintings as narrative or linear, but with the sculptures, my process is that I have to have a kind of narrative in order to make decisions, and they're less responsive. So I think that in a way, it just keeps my, my brain and my body active in a kind of holistic way. Whereas if I just made paintings, I think I might burden myself with this kind of mental marathon that I have to go through this like constant call and response that is it could be taxing whereas the sculptures there's a little bit more of a some relaxation mentally because I get to like you know there it requires more technique it requires a processes like okay now I have to mix plaster and you just go through the ingredients and your brain gets to relax a little bit I would have guessed the opposite I would have guessed yeah the exact opposite meanwhile back at made in LA you are showing several sculptures and big ones at that one uh titled self-reflection station resting form recalls Matisse's large reclining nude of the early 1920s and another self-reflection station, Standing Masculine Mui, capital M, capital W, small e, engages the Narcissus myth. Why were those art historical standards you were interested in, in walking up to? Well, I'll start first, I think, with the Narcissus myth. I think that has been a bit of a reoccurring theme. Back in 2015, I made these the very first self-reflection stations, which were kind of these tiered pedestals with a mirrored platform that I thought of as kind of infinity pools and like uh, recalling that image of looking into a body of water, seeing your own reflection and getting lost in it. And I think I'm drawn to this this narrative and this metaphor for how, I guess, art functions in that way. And this narcissist myth being one that can be something akin to navel gazing and getting lost in that process of self-discovery and self-creation, or it can be a fruitful place for change and a, a motivation for growth. So with that in mind, I consistently use the mirror as a motif, I guess you could say. So with that standing piece, there's the the base that is an actual mirror. And then there's a piece of glass that I kind of, I drew the form of the original mirror and then recreated it in glass. And it gets a little bit like molten and a little malformed. And these mirrors that I keep, there's hand mirrors and then there's this like kind of wall 
mirror. And I started with that shape as the ignition point for all the sculptures for the rest of the form. Like initially I was casting in glass and I was thinking of these mirror forms, but then altering, altering them with this transparent material with these like bleeding colors. I mean, there is something about the way those colors bleed is a little bit ineffable, almost kind of referring to in, in the Narcissus work, the, you know, ripples of water that would occlude a, a reflection. So, mm-hmm. so the work kind of has within it both the potential for reflection and also occlusion. Yeah. I think like the, the translation of a mirror into this transparent material instead of a reflective material for me indicates like that process, process of self-reflection as one that we have agency within to to reform the image that we have of ourselves. So I guess that's what I was trying to say. There's like this color that's bleeding and melding and in some kind of transitory like state seemingly. And with that standing piece, the mirror also, the that particular shape also seemed to me a bit of a shield as well. So there are these two figures that, they're holding a mirror, so they're supporting this like mirror form over a mirror, and they may be reflecting. They may be two separate individuals, or they may be the same individual reflecting itself in that repetition of form. I, I'm I'm also like conjuring that reflection of self, and because this form became kind of a shield-like piece as well as a mirror, I then pulled in this daisy, the daisy motif, the cast aluminum daisies as, as sort of an acknowledgement that it also seemed like an object connected to war and battle. And, and then like the daisy for me was that like that little bit of peace. I am not sure there's a ton of Matisse in your oeuvre, but the one, one of the other two sculptures here is super Matisse. So why were you drawn to Matisse's large reclining nude of the early 1920s? I mean, I think it was, that's a very classic, it's a very classic pose. The, the like the Odalesque, the, they also are, these are the first pieces I've pulled in like human genitalia in any way or actual body parts into my sculptures. So I think because the form as I was, as it was evolving became such a reclining nude that I just, I kind of went with it and leaned in more to the figurative aspect of it. There's the third piece that you haven't mentioned that is much more a domestic object, much more chair. And that one came first. So then, but it was still figurative. So I, yeah, I wanted to like, I guess I wanted to push that figuration into a realm I haven't worked with before. And in doing that, I, I found that I could be more playful with the materials and playful with this sense of, I guess there's a sense of serious, seriousness when you pull from that history of the reclining nude. There's a question of the gaze. So with with all these sculptures, they're all faceless. And instead of a face, there's that mirror. So I think that's a, that's a part of it. It's a, the, that reference to the gaze. 
your riff on a chair is almost kind of an extension of a hundred year old art historical joke because you know in matisse painting after matisse painting he's got women in chairs and then of course in in the large reclining nude sculpture he he kicks the chair away but we all know it was there because we're matisse fans and it, and and the joke keeps going through de kooning who especially early in his career made painting after painting after painting making fun of matisse's yellow and green chairs and so your kind of kind of, kind of two of these three and in a way all three of these sculptures kind of smirk and nod at at a lot of art history which is pretty entertaining i mean it it's only natural after being just like steeped in it for so long but and like there's so much space to I think when you refer to those those points in art history, there it actually opens up space for for the pieces to be bigger than themselves, you know. So yeah, there is this kind of funny thing that happens where the actual kind of chair piece you imagine yourself being in it. At least that was sort of my idea was that as a self reflection station, you as the viewer might imagine yourself sitting in the piece and then the other the the reclining one yeah that first one i imagine sitting in the piece and then also this kind of tension where you imagine almost being the piece as well because it's so anthropomorphic but then the reclining one there's that because of that reference to the gaze i think there is a voyeur like relationship that you have with that piece especially since it is like while it doesn't have a face gazing back at you, its body language is is one of confidence, I think. And then the other two, the two standing ones, I, f- I feel like your relationship, at least my relationship changes with, with those where you're very much outside of the the conversation or how the sculpture is relating to itself. One, one other thing about your painting. So we talked about Sunseeker, which has stuff coming off it, right? I mean, it is a it is a, a painting that enters the gallery space by probably a good five feet because of stuff hanging off of the painting. You have mm-hmm. very often, for many years, made paintings that have stuff hanging on them, that have mm-hmm. ridges, that have ruffles, that have mm-hmm. dimensional space. So as I hear you talk about your different mindset as approaching sculpture, as a, as approaching painting... I would have thought that the more, I don't know, difficult isn't quite the right word, but, but, but what you described strikes me more as related to the surfaces and three-dimensionality of your paintings than your sculptures. Well, I think that having both practices results in, in this, this natural evolution for the paintings, where I don't have to maybe put so much weight into those decisions. They just occur a little bit more fluidly because I have this other side of my practice. That's the most Matissean thing I've heard a painter say in weeks. Um, and of course, art historians have spent a hundred years trying to argue, you know, fairly successfully for a, a, a you know, a push me pull, pull you relationship between. It's my only Doctor Doolittle reference, probably um, a push me pull you reference between sculpture and painting in his sculpture and painting, which I'm not sure I've found in yours. But, you know, you're also you haven't been making work for 120 years. Um, So speaking of that topography on paintings, you know, for many years, there was a lot of it, not just a parachute, but kind of things hanging off, you know, kind of ruffles, sometimes burns. And in this most recent body of work, 
Not so much. Did you just grow uh, grow away from those moves? Did you want to see what it was like without them? I, I guess I'm asking, you know, why did you move on from from that dimensionality? Well, maybe for me, the color, my use of color is sort of replacing those impulses. The kind of push and pull of space and the breaking of like pictorial space is happening for me through color. I mean, the one at the hammer, there's this, the background is this really acidic, the two, there's these two corners, I think bottom, I'm not looking at it, but in my memory, bottom, lower left, left upper right. right. Yeah. These like this acidic highlighter yellow that is like really in the layer wise, it's in the background, but it jumps forward in kind of an aggressive way. And Whereas that purple pour that you talked about earlier is it's translucent. So you can see all the layers behind it and it simultaneously kind of sinks back. So I think that that's why I haven't incorporated anything physical popping out of the surface because I think it would take away from the color doing that on its own. And, you know, I haven't moved away from that just you know i plan on on continuing the silk paintings and sewing and using those materials ruffles and burns and the, you know there's a piece of lead coming off of the other painting i don't know i'm embracing a variety within my practice and resisting sticking to any one medium as something that defines me or my practice or my vision i think there's a lot to be explored through material and how it's translated and and I want to give you know each material and each work its own kind of moment and utilize the strengths of that material and you know there's I think there's a cross conversation within the work to be had but then they also have their own kind of voice turns out color is really important right oh yeah <laughs> Erica Mahinai, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Krissa in New York through March 10th, 2024. The show features the artist's rarely seen neon sculptures, as well as plaster, marble, and cast metal pieces, and works on canvas and paper. Krissa was a leader within avant-garde circles during her years in New York and was one of the first to incorporate neon into her practice. Co-organized by the Manil Collection and Dia Art Foundation, Krissa in New York is the first major survey of the artist's work in the United States in more than 50 years. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to BAMFA.org. From September 23rd through January 7th, 2024, the Nasher Sculpture Center presents Groundswell, Women of Land Art. This exhibition explores the impact of 12 artists who profoundly shaped land art between the late 1960s and 1990. 
The exhibition delves into the artist's innovative use of earth, wind, water, fire, wood, salt, rocks, mirrors, and even explosives as mediums. Groundswell provides a fresh perspective on the evolution of land art. Explore how the artist's creations echo nature's elements, challenging conventional artistic norms and inspiring a renewed appreciation for the environment. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Teresa Baker, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Your work in Made in LA and much of your work in recent years is made from enormous swaths of astroturf, plastic grass, as much as what, nine feet high and six or seven feet wide. Why astroturf? Well, in order to answer that, I have to go back just to explain how I got there. I have loved abstraction for many, many years. And one thing I battled with in abstraction or in painting or all of that were was the confines of the square and the rectangle and canvas and just how to make what I was trying to say, what I was interested in looking at, how to make the artwork feel like I could, like it would come alive. Like it would just wouldn't be a static object. And so for years throughout school, it was trying out different materials. And it was sort of battling that the sort of confines of the square and the rectangle and like, okay, what other materials can I use? You know, how can I use a formal language, you know, formal through these shapes and colors and textures? And how can I make them come alive? How can I make them talk about landscape? Because one thing I realized in abstraction was, I think in a lot of ways, what I'm interested in conveying or, or, or having lived presently in the work is this way of seeing that was formed from my upbringing. And that goes back to these vast Northern Plains landscapes. For me, those landscapes hold culture, memories, family. And I'm just kind of obsessed with getting that feeling through an object. And some of my favorite art objects are the ones where they don't necessarily have language. You know, I mean, I mean, in terms of describing them is really hard and, and it's more of a feeling response. And anyway, so basically I spent about 10 years searching, searching. I went through foam. I tried felt. I tried you know, all these different materials. And strangely enough, they all end up being like pretty like easily accessible, cheap, like mass produced materials. Part of that is, you know, just economics of what I could afford. Part of that is actually the kind of drive to make a low material beautiful in a sense, and to kind of take it to another level, let it have a different life. I've always found that with sort of kind of finished materials or high-end materials, they're problematic for me in that they're they're just too polished. Like I needed something that could have some grit and some life and be strong. So, you know, I'm like assigning all these almost in a way like personal human characteristics to these materials. And so I was living in Beaumont, Texas. So I went to grad school at CCA 
in San Francisco. I loved it. Had a great time there. I was fortunate enough to spend two years um, at the Headland Center for the Arts as an artist in residence, basically. Two different residency programs. And then my husband, he had moved back to Beaumont, Texas, where he's from, to do end-of-life care for his grandparents. So we had been doing long distance for about four years, and I was at a place where I was kind of stopping, in a sense, in the Bay Area, or could join him. And so I joined him and together got to meet his amazing grandparents and do end-of-life care and learn about a really important part of part of what that transition is. Anyway, so, you know, Beaumont, Texas is in the Gulf Coast. It's like, it's about an hour from Louisiana, an hour and a half from Houston. It's really different from how, where I grew up. Never anticipated to live in that place, but it brought a lot to me. And one major thing it brought to me was working on AstroTurf. And part of that was I was still in my search for what is my, you know, basically it's AstroTurf has become my canvas in a sense. And there's no art stores there. So I was wandering the halls of Home Depot looking for some inspiration. And there was a bright blue AstroTurf I had just never seen. It was just, it felt so alien to me. And it was really, yeah, that mysteriousness of it intrigued me. So I took, you know, home like a few feet of it or whatever. And of course, some of my favorite questions in, you know, going to like craft stores or Home Depot is everyone wants to know what you're going to do with this material. Because apparently it's really for boating. I, I guess that like that marine blue is like meant for the bottom of boats. And so, uh, you know, and then I have to explain I'm doing this kind of abstract work with it. But anyway, so I yeah, took it back to the studio. I was excited because it's firm enough that it will hold a shape. So by that point, I was searching for a material where I could just do these organic shapes and I didn't have to worry about a backing. So there was all these logistical, formal aspects that it just checked off all the boxes. Like surprisingly, it was like, I could cut into it easily. We'll hold its shape. It's, it's strong. And so then I, I had used, I put down yarn basically on top of it to find the exact shape I want. And uh, as soon as I did that, it was, it was just kind of magic. It was, there was a connection between the two materials where they stick to each other, almost like, like Velcro a little bit, not that strong, but similar. And it felt like a drawn line also right on top of the, the AstroTurf. And that felt exciting. It felt like this new way to kind of get through painting and drawing marks that was really intriguing to me. So it was basically 10 years of searching for a material to come across this thing that I just certainly did not anticipate being the answer. So there are two things about that material I'd like to ask. One, it seems like one of your rules, and indeed it sounds like one of the reasons you embraced AstroTurf as a material is because it freed you from the rectangle or from the square and really, in general, the right angle. So mm -hmm. while some of these AstroTurf works of yours over many years now have maybe a right angle in one corner, almost as if that's the way to attach the thing to a wall, it seems like it's almost a motivating rule for you to avoid a shape that 
descends extremely strongly from European and European American picture making. Mm -hmm. What was it that motivated you away from the rectangle or the square to begin with? It it never felt alive. And I, I wish I had a different word to describe that, but that's that's how it feels. I mean, I grew up in a culture where we had high you know, my my family hunts and I grew up around hides and my father brain tanning and I just I think there's just a more fluid feeling to the materials, you know, when you're kind of surrounded by some of this where to me, I don't understand why there should be. It has to be in us. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but like sometimes it feels like Western artists like that, right? Like here's your confines. This makes it art. And I've always found that that feels, feels boring and it doesn't, it feels too much like art. And so if my, my mission is to investigate an object that, that has a sense of, of the artist behind it, people behind it, you know, visceral, responses like I can't work within that shape there are a few exceptions in my astroturf work there's a few rectangles here and there but it's pretty it's pretty rare and it depends on how the piece comes together and what it needs so and I do not consider myself a textile artist but even my mother's side I'm German American on my mother's side and they were quilters and of course they follow much more of the square and rectangle there but like I mean, we had homemade quilts on our beds and, you know, we were just raised to respect the work and the craft that went into all of this. I mean, really a thing that provided warmth, but was also beautiful. So I just, I had a, a different level of maybe understanding for the, for the materials around me growing up as well. So were you, are you interested in the potential of the material astroturf to offer you access to a range of metaphors. Yeah. And that's what it's, it's become the longer I work with it. You know, initially it was like, Oh, okay, here's this kind of like, here's the answer to all the, the, the sort of formal problems, but there's no way to escape even from the very beginning of like, why am I using this? What does it represent? Especially because I'm interested in landscape to be using this artifice in this capacity and, and what does that mean culturally? And so, you know, there's constant questions even now that I have, but one thing I love about it is it's, it brings up the questions. It brings up the conversations. It brings up this idea of kind of thinking about land removal, thinking about replacement from these like giant corporations. It brings up, just even now that I live in LA, this Southern California conversation of like, in order to, you know, combat climate change, let's put down plastic on our lawns. You know, it's like, that doesn't make sense at all. But so let me explain that very quickly to people who don't live in LA. <laughs> For years now, maybe four or five years across Los Angeles, the city and county have been encouraging homeowners to replace their front lawns with plastic grass as a way of discouraging people from dumping water onto onto an organic artificiality. What, what did you say what you just said? What you're referring to is that lots of people in LA have plastic grass in their front yeah. yard. Yeah. And I'm all for replacing it with native gardens, native, native plants. I think that makes much more sense. But anyway, so what 
I, what I love about it is it actually brings up so many openings for conversation that comments on modern society and, and history, uh, history of this, this, this idea of land loss. But the other thing that I also think about is I was raised in a way where, I mean, we used to paint on hides. Then the Europeans brought over fabric. Then we started quilting. Then, you know, our, the coverings of our sweat lodges changed from, from originally hides and natural plants to now a lot of like rugs are being used, you know? So there's, there's like also this conversation of adaptability and, and reclaiming and making a material your own as well that I've always been a part of and observed. And so in a way it doesn't, it feels really natural to use what is accessible to you. And I like that act of kind of reclaiming something and and making it your own and, and making culture still exist through it, making, you know, and I don't know, it's just something I think about a lot in terms of how we're moving. And that's a bigger, there's like so much in that conversation, right, of economics, of obviously capitalism, of forced removal. I mean, I'm not saying it's all good, but I'm saying that humans and native peoples have an incredible way of adapting and making sure they also still hold on to their culture and they make sure it's still there, even if some of the materials are changing. And I think that's the beautiful aspect of that. I I think your choice of material also points to art's 200 plus year old role in building European American ideas about land and landscape. (laughs) Many of these works, by no means all of them, feel very much like you are abstracting landscape, pictorial landscape. Do you, as you're making or planning a work, think in terms of this is a landscape or this is something else, fill in the blank? No, no, I Mm. don't. It's afterwards. Mm. It's so my pro I have a process based practice. It's intuitive. In some ways, I feel like that simplifies it because it's, it's also based on years and years of understanding how I like formal shapes and materials to interact and like all of these kind of questions that sometimes I can't even break down for myself of like, I don't know, there, there is like kind of this system of rules, but at this point, I know that system, but then I also, when I go in, a lot of my practice is about being really present. So I have to be ready to make these decisions, ready to respond to, you know, maybe that initial shape that I've cut into the astroturf, into my so-called canvas. And and so then I respond with color, you know, what is maybe, for example, my most recent show that's up now at DeBoer or, you know. Uh, is like I've been thinking a lot about more in terms of seasons and so the thing I love about like process intuitive based work and abstraction is is that my whole life comes into it everything like it depends where I'm at and what I'm thinking about and so then all of a sudden you have color choices that are kind of based off of you know what you're interacting with every day maybe where you are at in life I'm a new mother and I have a two-year-old son you know, and so I've been observing this season of summer in such a different way. And so I'm, you know, I, I guess it's really personal. The, the work is really personal. And, but the, I don't always have to say that. 
you know, I don't always have to tell the viewer that the hope is that, that some sort of feeling comes through. That's, that's the ultimate for me. So, so when I'm in the process of making, it's like, I am tuned into like, what does this, this shape need to be? What does this art want to be? This piece in particular, because for me, they all have their own identity in a way, their own autonomy. So I rarely replicate. It doesn't mean I won't in the future or whatever, but I rarely replicate the same shape. I'm more interested in their relationship as two objects to each other and how they live together and bounce off one another. I mean, my my greatest challenge I give to myself as an artist is to to not replicate too often, even within the piece, you know, even it's, it can be so subtle, but all of a sudden, you know, it's like, I've decided to put the willow in between the yarn, you know, it's all these like slight different mark making decisions that change the piece that make it different from the last. So, so in process, I'm really following those investigations, responses. And then what happens at the end of the work, when I know what it is, or when I've sat and, and figured out, like, you're done, you're definitely finished. And then that's when my titles come. That's when I kind of look at it and be like, okay, what, what are you, fun- like, how are you functioning? What, what are you doing as a piece? And that's often when I will, they don't all have a personal memory or history in such a specific way, but there's a piece called Missouri River where I just followed intuitively. And then afterwards, I I was like, oh, okay, you're a really specific memory, but memory based off of storytelling. So, So this kind of visual, like there's kind of this bottom half circle in the right that mimics like our earth lodge shape. And then there's these buckskin shapes that kind of intersect the piece on the left side that have definitely like a river quality, but there's also the way that the piece is shaped. I feel like I'm looking up at it. And so I was, so I titled it Missouri River. And part of that was from our original camps used to be the top of the Missouri River before we were moved. And so it's like, of course, it's not a memory that I have seen, right? But it's these stories that have been told to me, where all of a sudden, when I look at it, I'm like, I just think this is exactly what this is. This is what this makes me think about. So that's when, yeah, that's when the landscape comes in. Once you identify it, I can find some spatial geography in that, in that piece. Yeah. You can find some reference to bluffs. You can find some. Bluffs. There's the word I was looking for. (laughs) (laughs) It's always easier when, when you're not the one talking. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. You mentioned using material like yarn and, and willow, which in, in these works is present uh, like in stick form. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you start with AstroTurf and then you often add yarn or willow sticks or beads or buckskin. Is there a semiotics of materials within the work? That is, are there specific meanings you associate with particular materials, comma, or is it less direct than that? Well, there's specific meanings for the natural materials, but there's not specific symbols. So the meanings of the traditional materials are that I understand that they've had functions or spiritual purposes within my tribe, 
tribes because I'm from two different tribes. And so they get to carry that history into the work and they get to carry, they carry that meaning and they carry the grounding. You know, I really think that they ground, they ground the work into something much more meaningful and real and lived. But I do sometimes get questions about symbols and I don't use direct symbols, at least not right now. And I haven't in the past, but, but that's on purpose. That's more of an abstraction conversation and thinking about the, the, the work as a whole, having this new, new life. One of your moves with the yarn Mm -hmm. is to build areas from lines of yarn, um, straight, curving, squiggly technical term, squiggly, (laughs) you know, yarn built up into raised surfaces, dense surfaces. So it's a move that adds a lot of tactility to the work, a lot of topography to the work, a lot of contrast between materials. From where does that move come and why do you like it? I think the move comes from painting and drawing practice, you know, and then, and becomes a way for me to almost paint with materials and, I mean, give it just to really play with the diff. I have, I have limitations and, and they're limitations I'm comfortable with, but the yarn can only do so much in terms of like mark making, I, you know, because we have this one line that is determined. So I think I start using squiggles <laughs> because I'm like, how can I give, you know, shape? How can I give movement? Or I build up because it needs to differentiate. There needs to be that thickness compared to like the one, you know, the yarn line going off in this direction and compared to thickness. And so, and so then I play also with different textures of yarn. The yarn itself is, is much in line with the AstroTurf. I mean, I buy it from Michaels, you know, I don't hand dye it. I don't, it's, it's mass produced yarn. And so I'm limited to what colors they have for that season etc. Of course, I didn't even think of that. But, yeah. um, all, you know, like, reminds me of Fred Sandback, who, of course, specifically specified that the yarn used in his installations be the cheap stuff. Mm-hmm. You mentioned painterliness and kind of an interest in, in, in referring to painting with the way you use yarn in the work. Are mm-hmm. there specific painters who have informed those shapes that the squiggly, the topography? No, there's no, I think it's more just thinking about how I can make the yarn painterly, but I will give you some, some influences. I mean, Richard Tuttle was a huge influence when I first started school, started undergrad and learned about him after moving to New York city. I wasn't raised with seeing art like that at all. It was, it was pretty, yeah, just blew my mind. It made a lot of sense to me. And I mean, Stanley Whitney is, an, is a painter, painter that I go back to a lot. I love, I just love his work. And, you know, I am drawn to some of the, like Milton Avery, that kind of like minimal kind of landscape. My art history terminology is always lacking, but, but yeah, anyway, so M- Milton Avery, like people like that, I've always really been drawn to as well. So for me, some of the way you use the yarn, especially the squiggles, remind me of Jonathan Lasker. Mm, I, oh, I love Jonathan Lasker. Yeah. I actually, he, I loved him so much when I was younger as well. So yeah, there's a playfulness that's just, 
that's another thing I, I forget to talk about, but I'm playfulness is important to me in the work because I think it, it should be, I think there should be that aspect to art. I mean, Eva Hesse, you know, a long time ago was also someone I love for her materiality and the playfulness of the way you use lines of thin lines of mm-hmm. yarn, such as in Missouri River, mm-hmm. reminds me of Virginia Jaramillo mm. yeah. and the playfulness yeah. of her line. Yeah. And well, then I was just going to say, I, I don't think like you're spending much time at all thinking about Jasper Johns, no. but um, Trace View does have a very Johnsian element at the far left where all those colors kind of come in. One of the works up at the hammer have these kind of Johns-like abstracted mm. curvy shapes in areas boy that is bad one i think about often honestly but i no, i don't see it anywhere else in the work i just see it in those 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 two yeah all of the works at the hammer are wall-mounted works made from astroturf but you've also made sculpture informed by basketry and and i think just as an aside given that back you know you, we're talking about a California show. You live in mm-hmm. LA. And given that basketry was such a significant form advanced by California Native Americans, mm-hmm. uh, let me note that the way in which you're weaving and making here is not at all within the California tradition. Yeah. Um, not in materials, not in form, not, not at all. Why does basketry interest you? And why were you interested in weaving into sculpture? Well, I started baskets because it's also um, a tradition that that my tribe, the Hidatsas, did as well. So we made baskets, burden baskets. I mean, they were later called. But anyway, we had vast gardens. We were really known for being incredible gardeners. And so, of course, there's a function for having those baskets to carry produce, but they were used in many different ways. So the reason I started making them was was for that. I was like, I want to carry on this tradition. I didn't ever make the baskets I've shown and make are not burden baskets. I do want to make that distinction. I don't have the rights yet. That's a important thing to know is I would need to get the the proper rights to make an actual tribal burden basket, which just means I I need to go home for a little bit. So, (laughs) but anyway, so I started with the intention. Always easy to do when you have a kid. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. The intention was, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to teach my myself how to make baskets. Also, my mom used to make baskets. So it was in the realm, you know, it was, it was, it was not uncommon for me to be around baskets. So I, I taught myself. And of course, what happened is I taught myself and that meant that I started listening to the material. And the important part was that I was using the traditional willow material, but I was going to see kind of where the baskets took me. I knew I wanted them non-functional. I knew I wanted them tall, three to four feet tall. And so that, that was my goal at the very beginning, just like what, how are these going to function in relation to the wall pieces, which are not uh, woven. They're specifically not woven, but I wanted to look at this kind of weaving sculptural aspect in relation to the wall pieces. And the the greatest thing that the baskets gave me is they allowed me to think, oh yeah, why is the willow not on the work? So they were really important part of the practice. I'm I'm actually taking a little bit of a step back from the baskets because I want to rethink their future a little bit. It doesn't mean I'm not I'm done with them, but I'm kind of questioning how they're functioning a little bit. But they were very important in the process because it it opened me up to taking Willow onto the wall. 
they're also volumetric and 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 the wall mounted work is yeah. aggressively flat pictorially <laughs> aggressively flat i love flat i'm i really i do love that but and it was my first time making sculpture you know really so which i think is important important there's a little bit of purrier in the baskets too mm-hmm. yeah i think in that treatment of volume and yeah, yeah. volume in relation to yes. to the size and height of the thing yes um, i actually love how they live with the wall pieces really i think they have such a nice relationship together so and they're colors that the often very artificially colored wall pieces mm-hmm. non-organically colored better phrase yeah. Yeah. wall pieces I also, you know, before we finished up, I wanted to ask about your drawings, which I don't know how long you've been exhibiting them, but I know you've exhibited them in at least one or two venues over this past summer. Mm-hmm. They are on ledger paper. They are a little bit landscapey, and and the colors are not, again. Um, I should be asking more about the colors. I guess we'll do that in a minute. Mm-hmm. The the compositions on ledger paper are a little bit Helen Tor, a little bit Arthur Dove, a little bit Tom Naskowski. Actually, there's a lot of Tom Naskowski, I think, in a lot of your stuff. They're they're on ledger paper. You know, the 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 paper for for young people that people used to do accounting on, financial mm-hmm. accounting on, and there is some remnants of such on the ledger paper you use. Mm-hmm. Why ledger paper? Well, I love native ledger drawings. I mean, here's another example of of having materials all of a sudden introduced. So you're moving from hide to paper to whatever these, you know, military, colonial, you know, all these guys that, I don't know, I, you know, like all of a sudden you have kids, you have native peoples historically have access to paper in this way for the first time and make incredible, beautiful drawings that have narrative purpose and storytelling purpose. And I mean, talk about playful and historical uh, purpose too. I mean, they are, they're they're self-consciously historicizing often. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're playful, like going back to that idea of playfulness and color and they're bright. And I've just, oh, I've always loved them so much. And, but I don't do narrative work. And, but then I, I, um, so my mother-in-law, who unfortunately I never got to meet, she passed away before I met my husband, but she was a CPA in Beaumont, Texas. And so when we were moving, we found like a giant book of her, all of her old accounting accounts of paper. And so we, um, I started drawing on them, but before that I've had a drawing practice for years. I don't, I don't, yeah, you're right. I don't show them. It was only the, in the last summer I I showed them in a group show with Anthony Myers and then at a show at Halsey McKay, a solo show there. But then once I found the accounting paper, because I've always been interested in, okay, well, can my drawings translate? Can they, do I get to make these abstractions on ledger paper? And I mean, of course I do, but I wanted to know, you know, how that would feel. And so having the personal aspect of this be my mother-in-law's paper, I never got to meet her. So there's also that personal moment of feeling like a connection with her as well and just being able to use this paper. But so that's why the specific ledger ledger paper for those. And then the drawings themselves are are ways, they're really ways for me to get out color and shape really fast without the worry of like, oh, this might be on display someday. 
it might be viewed by public. So in some ways, it's really, they feel very honest to me. Not that the wall pieces don't, but they're, they're just, they can be quicker. So the choices are faster. There's not a lot of kind of second guessing. It's, it's, you know, I've talked about intuition before, but this is like fast intuition. This is not as precious. And so in that way, I love the drawings for that reason, because I think in that moment is where you can find energy in, in an artwork. Finally, as we noted a moment ago, I keep referencing your palette without us not having talked about your palette. Almost all of the colors on your AstroTurf pieces are inorganic. Yeah. are maximally artificial. They are, I don't want to say shocking in their pinkness or their yellowness yeah. or their pink and yellow and greenness, but awful darn close to that. <laughs> There's so much inorganic near shockingness that it all has to be intentional. So why have you tended toward those ZOMG colors? Well, I guess I don't like realistic landscapes in art. I mean, that's a pretty blanket statement. That's that's a little unfair because I don't know if that's always true. But in terms of thinking about how to get feeling, energy of a place, electricity of a place, what I can lean on is color. I mean, especially, I would say, you know, there's a brown piece in the hammer. Of course, there's like earth tones in, in my work, but I always want to kind of offset that with, with like either a a shock of color or a jolt of color. And that feels like a way to get expression, to get feeling through. Color is so powerful in that way. I mean, we all respond to color. And I think bright colors, kind of going back to that playfulness, there is a real, you know, need for me to feel like, I mean, dark colors just I there I did work on black astroturf for a while because there's limitations on like the, the different colors of astroturf you can get. You know, you mention earth colors, but yeah. even your earth colors are a shade or a tone off of real. Yeah. Like, you know, your 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 big blues, your big swaths of blue often tend toward the teal. Mm-hmm. Your your greens often have enough yellows in them that you know they're they're a twenty minute super bloom. Um, (laughs) California reference. Even your earthiest colors kind of wink at and quickly depart from. Yeah. I mean, that's the most exciting part in, in expression, I think is just, just brightness, pushing that color. But that's the, you mentioned super bloom. And I mean, these are the most, like you think about seasons and you think about springtime and in LA, that super bloom, it's vibrant, it's, it's energetic, it's, it wakes you up. It's so happy. And thinking about springtime on the plains and seeing these first wildflowers bloom, you know, they don't necessarily, and they're so small, but they're like, they're always a sign. They're always a sign of the next season, of the next thing to come. And they're this small detail of brightness in this kind of vast browns, yellows, you know? And so they, I think they signify a lot and using bright colors helps me kind of, I don't need the realism in that way of landscape. I need the, the kind of the expression, the feeling through color. And I've been really obsessed with yellow lately, just a side note, love yellow. So big Jonathan Lasker color. (laughs) Oh, and pink. He really (laughs) likes pink. 
I actually don't like pink in normal, my normal every day, but I love, I'm a little obsessed with pink <laughs> as well in my work right now. So love it. Teresa Baker, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.